Welcome to the Spirited Advocate Podcast, brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, the leading voice for the distilled spirits industry. Now your host, Chris Wonger. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Spirited Advocate Podcast. Obviously, I'm not Chris Chris Wonger, but I'm your guest host, Christine Locascio. I'm the Chief of Public Policy with the Distilled Spirits Council, and I am so pleased that this week we have our northern neighbor, Jan Westcott, the President and CEO of Spirits Canada, to join us for an interesting discussion about the Canadian spirits market and everything in between. Welcome, Jan. Thank you very much, Christine. Uh, Delighted to be here. Excellent. Thank you. Um, So let's get started. I have several questions I want to hear from you and hear your input. Um, Just to kick things off, I think obviously looking back at 2020, you know, we're we're in the middle of 2021, but still looking back and reflecting on uh, how 2020 impacted us. And to say it was an interesting uh, year for our industry is certainly an understatement. So I wonder if you you could just opine a little bit on, on the Canadian spirits market, any reflections you have about the impact of of uh, last year, the pandemic and all that on on the industry in Canada? So uh, we were one of the fortunate groups. Our business held uh, uh, because of a number of fortuitous decisions that different governments across Canada made. So while our colleagues in the hospitality uh, sector, you know, suffered dramatic uh, declines, uh, life-threatening declines, the spirits business uh, actually improved slightly. Now, it's not to the extent that many people you know, uh, the country didn't drink itself into oblivion. Yes, there was a little more consumption, but it wasn't uh, anything really out of the normal. The Canadian business advances anywhere from one to two percent, two and a half percent on a volume basis every year. Last year, we netted out at around four percent, so a little better, but not hugely, uh, not hugely better. And that that is despite the fact that most of our uh, partners in the hospitality sector were closed and for, ext- for quite extended periods. In fact, in Ontario, which is Canada's largest province, um, we still don't have indoor dining and only today uh, our patio dining is patio dining uh, going to be allowed. So we're considerably behind the United States. Uh, Canada has a, had a more difficulty accessing vaccine. So we're probably tracking three to four to, you know, in some parts of the country, six months. So despite um, those declines, um, the business has held up. Uh, you know, the, the pretty much in every sector, the outstanding um, uh, part of the business has obviously been uh, uh, ready to drink and coolers and those kinds of things. And we can chat about that a little bit more. Um, but uh, uh, I guess the other dimension to the pandemic uh, that has been uh, was a little bit unusual. It's very early on because of the shortage of hand sanitizers. I know this has happened in the United States as well. The spirits industry, both on a on a uh, informal basis, uh, but also on a formal basis, certainly the large companies became involved in providing uh, high strength, uh, very pure alcohol for specific types of hand sanitizer. And so that became a significant project for the industry. And we partnered with a couple of other groups, the cosmetics industry, um, uh, the specialty products uh, industry to coordinate uh, the provision of that and then the distribution along with other supplies necessary to make hand sanitizer. So, you know, the first three, four, five months of the pandemic had, had, a lot of people in the spirits industry pitching in, trying to figure out, as as people in all kinds of businesses did, but pitching in to sort of do our part. Um, 
uh, high strength, very pure alcohol was in short supply, I think not just in Canada. Um, and so uh, we were asked by the government of Canada to help. And um, I think we almost tripled what they were looking for uh, over a period of time. So um, interesting experience. Um, impressed, you know, I, I continue to be impressed with the, the response of the companies and the, um, you know, the, the real interest in being uh, helpful during, the, cam, uh, during the, the pandemic. So, you know, there's some puts and takes. But uh, generally speaking, um, you know, I think people were pleased. We're certainly looking forward to the end of it. Um, but the business has been okay in, in Canada. Yeah, and I know you hand sanitizer, and that was something we, uh, on you know, in, in the States as well, many craft distillers and, um, and distillers of all sizes jumped in to help produce that. Um, and it was, you know, lo- looking back on that, I think that's something amazing that our industry, you know, was able to kind of quickly pivot and step up to the plate to, to help. And so it was certainly an inter- something we never thought we would get involved in, right? But, um, you know, it was just great to see our industry step up to the plate and, and help out during that period. Well, I, it, it also, I think the other thing is people tend to think of spirits as this old traditional, we never change. It's always, and that's, that's part of the strength, right? That's part of the fact that we make products that people could, that consumers can rely upon. They know what they are, but I think it also in, illustrates uh, just how innovative uh, the industry is and can be um, uh, on an ongoing basis. This, this was a particular challenge, but I I was really impressed uh, to see some of the solutions and some of the offerings that came from both large and small uh, producers, and also the collaboration that took place between brewers and distillers and some wineries and distillers. Um, you know, the common cause uh, really was picked up by everybody, and that was very encouraging to see. And and you know, from a selfish point of view, from an industry person, I think those uh, types of actions and those examples really help. Uh, uh, the public see us in a slight, in a better light, in a different light, and not quite as invisible as we sometimes are. So, uh, I think, as I said, yeah. I think there's it was it's a tough period to go through. We're not quite at the end, but um, I think uh, there were some uh, bright spots in it uh, as well. Yeah. Thinking about just you, you talk about the hospitality industry and restaurants and. Um, you know, you're kind of not not at the, the level where the U.S. is in terms of vaccinations and, and opening it. I just wonder, you know, obviously in the United States, a big push here was um, cocktails to go as a way to have a, an additional revenue stream for those restaurants and bars to, you know, give them a way to earn, earn some extra revenue during that period where they were actually you know, totally closed down and then, you know, gradually reopening, um, you know, here on uh, it, at Discus, we're, we're pushing to make a lot of those measures uh, permanent uh, with, with quite a bit of success. We've had 14 states so far pass those um, laws and in, in permanently. Um, did you see anything like that in the Canadian hospitality industry, or did you see a rise in sort of consumers doing more cocktails at home? I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how consumers adapted and the hospitality industry um, had to adapt during that period and is still, I guess, adapting. So for, for folks that may not be as familiar with how the Canadian market is structured, uh, you have control states or what you refer to as control states in the United States. All of our provinces and territories are in fact control states and far more along the continuum of control than you would see in many US states. So Pennsylvania is probably the closest parallel. Uh, every province and territory has a liquor board. Uh, they have retail operations, they do all that stuff. So the first thing that happened was 
governments decided to keep all the liquor stores open. Uh, that was a big issue, um, uh, but that was very helpful. The second thing that Spirits Canada did, uh, recognizing the uh, burden that was going to be put on the hospitality industry, is we undertook a program to go out and talk to all of the um, major city municipal governments, the mayors, the councils. Uh, we wrote to them, we had discussions with them to be a lot more flexible than historically they have been on allowing bars and restaurants to have patios, to have patios in, let's say, unusual places, um, alleys, parking lots, to, to a certain extent, to allow people to almost commandeer space so that these businesses can continue. Um, and that, and, and, you know, we were pleasantly surprised by the uh, willingness of municipal governments, heretofore not that flexible on those kinds of things, or having to take a long time to allow a licensee to, to make changes. And so that, that's been pretty positive. We've continued that effort. It's, 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 as you've seen in the United States, it's a sort of a territory by territory kind of uh, activity. Uh, but have been impressed. And we've also pushed the provincial governments on the policy side to make sure that there was lots of flexibility. Um, we are tracking a little bit behind the United States on cocktails to go, but our two, two of our largest provinces, Ontario and Alberta, uh, allowed, have allowed cocktails. So the first thing that they did is they allowed the sale of beverage alcohol with takeout and delivered food. And um, that helped a great deal. Uh, obviously, that doesn't um, suit the spirits industry quite as well as it did the beer and wine industry. Um, not that many people buy a, uh, uh, you know, a, a bottle, uh, a full bottle of uh, spirits. Um, but we're, we made progress. So that was a, a very positive sign. And all governments treated all products the same. And in, I underline that. That's the pandemic has had a lot of positive changes. Um, and so uh, Ontario and Alberta, Ontario is the first, and Alberta uh, said, yeah, cocktails go make a huge amount of sense. They focus uh, the establishments on what their forte is, which is making individual, you know, highly uh, crafted individual uh, drinks and pairing those with their uh, food menus. And that's how they distinguish themselves, just on their food and their, and their drinks. So we uh, are in discussions with a number of the other provinces. British Columbia looks like it's coming along, Nova Scotia. Um, and it's also been a good uh, point of collaboration between uh, the spirits industry and our customers in the hospitality business. So we're, we're not quite as advanced as the U.S., but we're getting there. And uh, I think uh, we will see uh, more places come along. You know, the fact if, if you had told me two years ago that these kinds of changes would take place in beverage alcohol, I would have said, you're crazy. You're absolutely crazy. But the pandemic has essentially given governments the permission to do things and look over the edge that they never did before. And in fact, consumers are impatient that uh, governments are not acting as quickly um, on these things. So the positives for us is that uh, almost all the governments everywhere have said there's no difference in how we're going to treat beer, wine, and spirits. Um, uh, we want to uh, equip the hospitality industry to uh, recover and, and sustain themselves. And so we are trying to fit in. The, the, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce created an entire program uh, focused on um, you know, pushing governments to help the hospitality and the tourism industry. We joined that. We're uh, try to be an active member and lend our voice to that. Uh, so 
um, lots of stuff going on. And, and, and I think Ontario and Alberta have made cocktails to go permanent. So um, this is a very positive sign. So, uh, you know, I think we've, we've gained ground through the pandemic as much as the pandemic has hurt people and cost us and society has sustained a real blow. Um, it's also uh, uh, it's also seen many advances, which are which government just frankly are not going to be able to withdraw. Right. Right. And I know, you know, from a discus perspective, it's, you know, just listening to you talk, it's, it's very similar. You know, we are, um, you know, now collaborating, uh, collaborating more with our on-premise partners, doing things with the National Restaurant Association, with state restaurant associations. Not that we didn't work with them before, but now that, you know, we have very specific issues and we're, you know, tied at the hip working jointly on that and, and supporting some of their efforts, too, you know, in terms of uh, federal funding to support restaurants, things like that. So it's certainly been an interesting time. Time. And, and, uh, and some of these issues are are, have, are traditionally outside the scope of our what our relationship is. So you know, obviously, rent is a massive issue for people, right? Uh, in restaurants, and so you know, we have uh, where it makes sense for us, and where we're credible to do so, we've jumped in on some issues to say, guys, people in government, you have to focus on these things. So yes, it's been a. I certainly think it's brought us closer together with uh, uh, with our partners in uh, in those businesses. For sure, for sure, I totally agree. Um, so let's one one thing that's a very fast growing category in the United States now. And we keep looking to Canada as for your experience. You you mentioned it earlier, but ready to drink products. Um, there's a lot of interest here in the United States. We see huge growth in that uh, part of the business. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the Canadian market for spirits-based ready-to-drinks. Obviously, there are ready-to-drinks that are malt-based and wine-based as well. Um, but obviously, Canada had a very kind of unique experience with, with spirits-based RTDs. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. Um, I, I would say that the majority of RTDs in Canada are spirits-based. Um, there are other uh, wine and beer-based, malt-based, but the majority, I think, are spirits-based. And it's been an exploding category, 50%, 60% growth. Uh, I think we were up uh, over 50% uh, on a volume basis in 2020. Um, and uh, it's just, it's it's been amazing. Um, you know, we've been trying to suss out the drivers behind it as have the companies. Uh, I think there are many, uh, clearly convenience. I, I think to... to to, to not, not to denigrate any of the products that have been around for a long time, but I think everybody has been refining uh, the quality of what they are. And I think the consumer's responding to that. Obviously, uh, health consciousness, uh, convenience, all those things come into play. But the other part of it is that many people that aren't in the spirits business are now getting into uh, spirits-based RTDs. And so there's more marketing dollars. There's more promotion of that. Um, there are more, there's more presence for those kinds of things. It's not a secret that, you know, uh, many of the, uh, a number of the large brewers are well down that track if, if they're not already producing spirits uh, in their own right themselves. So I think all of those things have come together. Uh, certainly the convenience and the, the single serving aspect of them has been uh, a huge driver. And, it, you know, the, the positive sign is it, it doesn't look like there's any let up, number one, in that growth. And number two, it, it appears that there's really no um, uh, cannibalization. So our traditional spirits are holding. Uh, 
but we're also seeing at the same time the growth of the now we may get to some point where that starts to change but you know for the last period of time certainly through the pandemic um uh, traditional spirits have held ground grown and the we've seen this explosive growth of coolers and again it it's probably one area where we're seeing uh, incredible innovation. And I think that's also been a driver and is going to continue to be a driver. So it's pretty exciting. Uh, it's pretty exciting. Um, I think the products are changing. Uh, you know, uh, there's a, a wider range of things. And um, I think consumers are still looking to some of the brands that have been around for a long time. And but even those brands are modifying themselves slightly to sort of fit uh, more, more precisely what consumers are looking for. So I would, I would admit to everybody, you know, up until about a year ago, I didn't have any RTDs in my fridge. I'm a more traditional spirit drinker. We now have some in the fridge. But I, you know, to be honest, you know, my wife is the driver, of, tends to be the driver of what we consume. But um, if they're there, I've tried them. You know, they're pretty good on a, on a, on a, on the right circumstances. They're great. So uh, I think I'm not dissimilar uh Certainly, the the uh, younger population skews uh, much more to them, but um, you know, onwards and upwards. We've always been focused on serving uh, the customers' needs, and I think this is a great example where people are stepping up uh, to do that. Yeah, I know. I was just recently in my home state, and as we start to emerge, you know, those of us get vaccinated and emerge and go out shopping again, I was at a grocery store in St. Louis, and I would just couldn't believe how many varieties of, uh, you know, RTDs, canned cocktails there were. And I um, even visited a craft distiller that's, you know, very heavily in this space, and that was their number one product. It's a, gin, a canned gin and tonic, and it's kind of flying off the shelves for them, and good for them. So yeah. it's definitely an interesting time. I mean, you and I have been in this industry for uh, quite a while. <laughs> we have. We don't have to date ourselves, but um, it is it is fascinating to see the the growth of the sector and just how dynamic it is. Um, certainly growing. So why don't, uh, I thought maybe we spent a couple of minutes talking about trade. Obviously, the U.S. and Canada are very, very important trading partners um, just generally. But of course, for our industry specifically, I was just looking at the numbers for U.S. spirits exports. Canada is our single largest export market. Um, obviously, the EU beat, beats beats out Canada, but that's counting 27 countries. But the single largest country that we export to is Canada had a huge increase in 2020 over 2019, uh, over I think 23% and our exports of spirits to Canada were valued at 250 million. And then on the import side, um, I believe we imported $231 million worth of Canadian spirits in 2020. So um, very similar numbers there. Obviously, US and Canada enjoy each other's products. Um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the importance of, of trade from a Canadian perspective. So in, in Canada, uh, uh, we're, we're, we're not entirely unique, but we're a little bit unique in that about 70% of everything we distill leaves Canada, 70%. Wow. Now, Canada is very much an export-oriented country. We're a small country. Uh, you know, the, the old uh, saw about, you know, being traditional hewers of wood and drawers of water. Um, you know, we have provided resources to the world and certainly to the United States. And um, so we, we are very much an export-oriented country. For a small country, our standard of living is really helped along hugely by the extent of our exports. So um, 
trade is a critical issue for us. As you know, we fight battles in many parts of the world to make sure that our uh, members' products and distilled spirits products have fair and, and uh, equal access to consumers in those markets. Um, the United States is our uh, number one customer. Uh, I would venture the fact to say it's our best customer. You are our best customer. You are our friendliest customer. Um, Canadian whiskey uh, has a long history in the United States going back to some um, very important uh, uh, times in the United States, the Civil War, not so much prohibition, although everybody believes it's prohibition. So uh, we have in both countries developed a, uh, consumers have developed a taste for each other's products. So, you know, there's a huge uh, uh, bourbon uh, following in Canada. Uh, there's a huge uh, following for uh, Tennessee whiskeys in Canada. And um, I don't see that abating. In fact, I think as we see more products from particularly small distillers, uh, unique uh, um, uh, offerings, I think we're going to see that grow. You know, I think yeah, many Americans would be very familiar. They might they may not know they're actually from Canada, but they would be familiar with a lot of the brands, brands like Crown Royal, Canadian Club. And as with many U.S., uh, unique uh, U.S. products, um, you know, uh, in 2017, uh, Canada celebrated its 150th birthday, really younger than the United States. Um, and uh, in 2018, one of our brands celebrated its 160th birthday, <laughs> so 10 years older. And in 2019, another one of our brands celebrated its 160th anniversary. So we've been around a long time. As, as, um, as bourbon has factored in very much into the history of the United States, starting with George Washington, uh, whiskey has uh, played a role in, uh, in the development of Canada. The uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police owe their beginnings to a small group of uh, uh, mounted officers that went into southern Alberta in 1800s to uh, deal with uh, uh, illegal liquor being passed into the native communities, the indigenous communities. So, um, you know, there's this small, uh, there's this small uh, global insurance company called Manufacturers or Manulife, small insurance company that operates all over the world. The two founders of that were Sir John A. Macdonald, our first prime minister. Uh, he was kind of the brains for it. And a fellow by the name of Henry Corby of Corby Distilleries uh, and uh, a, a number of famous whiskeys was the banker. They were the two founders of the Manufacturer's Life Insurance Company or Manulife, which is so our business has in, been intertwined at different plate, parts and places. You know, to be honest, not always for the good. Sometimes, you know, there's been a there's been a mixed uh, uh, career and, and development. But um, trade is critically important. Um, and I, I would also say that in the last 20 years, we've seen a tremendous maturing of the global spirits industry in terms of appreciating that and understanding that and working together more closely to make sure that uh, trade is um, enhanced and 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 that everybody follows the rules. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that history. And, I, you know, I, that was fascinating. I was a history major as an undergrad. And so, um, you know, it's just fascinating to learn how our industry is so entwined with, you know, the founding of our nations, our respective nations. And, and I bet a lot of people don't don't know that. Um, 
So it's quite fascinating. And then just on the trade side for our, for our viewers too, I think it's important to note that um, you know Canada and the United States recognize each other's distinctive spirits and have done that since NAFTA, right? Since 1994. Um, so Canada recognizes bourbon and Tennessee whiskey as distinctive products of the United States. And we in the United States recognize Canadian whiskey as a distinctive product of Canada. And, um, you know, people outside the industry may not uh, understand how important that is to our producers, but that recognition is so critical to, um, you know, provide that tool um, to protect those brands. Because we have companies that, you know, small companies, medium companies, large companies that invest a lot of time and effort in crafting these products that sit around and age for a while. Um, and so having that formal recognition from our, you know, foreign governments is so important to, to ensure that, you know, when a consumer buys a product that says Canadian whiskey or that says bourbon, you know, in Canada and Canadian whiskey in the United States, that they have assurances that it is what it says it is. So absolutely critically important. Absolutely. Because if you don't have that, it's very hard to justify making the investments you need to develop the market. Um, yeah. If somebody can come in and effectively uh, steal your um, uh, property um, in, in that way. So, no, those are critical things. And, and you know, we have been successful. I mean, I think Discus and Spirits Canada offer an example of collaboration. We just went through the updating of the NAFTA, right? A um, little, little bit longer process than I guess some people thought it was going to take. Yeah. But the yeah. fact is that, and, and I was not the leader of that, my colleague was, there was a very close collaboration between our two organizations and our two industries to be able to say to both of our governments, here's what's in the interest of the spirits industry, uh, as well as the two countries, and and please pay attention to that. And I think our what we get back from our government is, wow, that's fantastic. We wish more industries were were like that and could figure out what they what was in their common interest because it just makes bringing the governments and 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 the deals together much better. And I think that you know that can serve as a huge example to many other places when, when we could do it. It's not always possible, but right. I think it also goes to the um, longstanding relationship there's been. I look at Canada, the U.S. in the spirits business as a seamless border. It really is. Goods flow back and forth um, every single day. Uh, the U.S. is a huge market for us. Canada is an important market for you. So maintaining that seamless border is, is, is forget the industry. That's critically important for consumers, right? It right. makes it easy and 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 cost effective for uh, people that enjoy our products to be able to get them when they want them, where they want them, and at prices that are reasonable. And so that's the benefit that everybody gets. And let's be honest, governments put their hands in our pockets a little bit along the way, and you know we support our industry support lots and lots of public good uh, in both our countries and in many parts of the world. Right. Um, you, you mentioned craft distillers and, you know, in the United States, we've had this huge growth of craft distillers and many of them, you know, we, we work with them a lot to help them export their products. We've been doing quite a bit of work in Canada. Um, but I wondered if you had just had some uh, advice uh, or any, anything that you would say to U.S. craft distillers that are looking to Canada as a potential export market, um, just any advice you might give them who are, who are watching this today? So, um, as as uh, as a as a association that represents large distillers, uh, many large distillers, I'm I'm very jealous of the, uh, as are some of the companies, of the attention 
that the small distilling uh, sector is getting, the craft distilling sector is getting, and, and they deserve it. I mean, there's huge innovation. There's every day I see new things, um, different, uh, different outlook on it. Uh, so my Canada has a different system. We have liquor boards. Um, uh, we have some private retail in some provinces. And I'll come and talk about that in a second. So right now, um, the large liquor boards, Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, BC, Alberta is a bit different, um, are actively looking for. So don't be shy about sending, um, you know, putting your requests in. They are looking for that and consumers are looking for that. They read about um, different things happening in Canada and the United States particularly. They're looking for new uh, uh, types of products to try. And so, um, you know, by all means, uh, the door is open. And, and I said, don't be shy about uh, uh, testing the water. The one thing I would tell you is that in, in most provinces, the, certainly the large provinces, Ontario, Quebec, British Columbia, if you want to be sold in the government liquor stores, you have to apply to get a listing. And I, it's, it's a fair process. Um, you know, some people would say it's a bit of a bureaucratic process, uh, and, but I, I would encourage you to do it. The exception being Alberta. All retail in Alberta is private. And so uh, you don't have to get a listing, uh, you know, from a government agency if you want to sell product. And so I uh, advise many people, uh, many companies that are interested in coming to Canada, the U.S. and elsewhere, that a first point of entry, uh, Alberta represents a good opportunity because there are very few barriers. Now, it's like everywhere else. Putting your product into the market is one thing, making sure that consumers in Alberta and businesses in Alberta, you know, bars and restaurants and different things are aware of it and know the, the benefits and the features of it is important. So it, it, it's, a, it's a little closer to a, a, a real world example of you get uh, re the return that you put into it in Alberta. And then once you establish in Alberta, many other provinces look at what you're doing in Alberta and say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, we want that too. So um, <laughs> It's fascinating. Not to discourage anybody from, uh, you know, looking at Ontario, Quebec, BC, but certainly Alberta is a, a slightly easier way in. Um, you know, based you, you basically uh, uh, can come into that market. Your product can go into the warehouse. You have to go through the, the usual normal um, things that you would do from a public uh, product safety issue and things like that. Canada does have some. Uh, somewhat unique rules around labeling. Uh, we are a bilingual country, uh, you know, so we have some of those kinds of things. But um, it's it's a bit of an easier. Uh, I think it's a bit of an easier way. And as I say, once you establish your uh, bona fides in Alberta, then most other provinces say, "Yeah, me too, me too." And the last thing is um, <clears throat> Alberta, partly because of the relationships that have developed over the last hundred years between Texas and Alberta and other parts, uh, particularly on the energy side, um, there is a strong uh, appetite for bourbon in Alberta. Uh, so um, just be mindful of that. Um, not that there isn't in the rest of the country, but um, it's particularly enhanced, I think, in Alberta and continues to be. So there's a lot of um, uh, cowboys that uh, think of themselves as bourbon drinkers in Alberta. I know lots of them. Wow, that's very good insights, Jan. Thank you. I'm sure our viewers appreciate that. Um, 
And speaking of bourbon, uh, I hope you're going to mark your, your calendar, but here in the U.S., Monday, uh, June 14th is National Bourbon Day. So I hope you'll get a, a nice glass of bourbon and, and toast bourbon on that, our, our National Bourbon Day. So so my, my favorite cocktail is an old-fashioned. And I uh, travel all over the world uh, when, I, when I travel, asking people to make me old-fashioned. And we've had some amazing old-fashioned. Uh, and I have two or three bourbons that I like to try in them. So I will definitely have an old fashioned with one of my favorite bourbons on the 14th. I'll make it, I'm, I don't need an excuse to have one, but this sounds like a pretty good uh, reason to sort of make it a special day. So count me in. Oh, great. And Dan, I, I'm going to defer to you to tell me when it's in Canada, when it's National Canadian Whiskey Day, and we'll, uh, we'll do something here on our side to help highlight it. Sounds I don't good. know what it is, Sounds but good. I'll just ask you to tell me. Uh, that's great. So um, I guess last question here. Um, if you could sit down for a drink with anyone, past or present, who would it be and why? Uh, I think it would be, um, and everybody will know this name and, and know the individual, it would be Winston Churchill. Mm -hmm. um, I think of Churchill as a very courageous fellow. Uh, he said what he thought, not always to his own benefit on some occasions. Um, he knew, he really seemed to know how to lead people in very difficult and almost desperate uh, circumstances. And uh, I think he, he evokes uh, the, the sense of real leadership. Um, the, the other thing is he was a spirits drinker, right? He enjoyed spirits and he made no secret of it. Now, he also drank champagne. So we, you know, we have to be conscious of that, but he was a spirits drinker and he made many uh he peppered a lot of his uh conversations and dialogue with people uh around spirits and so he was knowledgeable i don't know if he drank everything but he certainly drank a number of our products so i think it would be fascinating to sit down and talk to him and have some uh you know reminiscences uh, of him of, of his as as to uh how uh he did this um and sort of what guided him to do it so that would be you know, the two of us sitting having an old fashioned would be unbelievable. Oh, my gosh. So I can picture that in my mind's eye. And I think that'd be a lot of fun. And and, and as I said, uh, a, a tremendous uh, learning opportunity. And I, it's funny you should mention that because I just recently rewatched uh, Darkest Hour with Gary Oldman, who has just a, an amazing uh, performance of um, in that in that film of Winston Churchill is just unbelievable. And I think a lot of the things you talk about come through in that film, you know, his leadership and courageousness and, and all that. So anyway, well, thank you so much, Jan, for joining us for The Spirited Advocate. Appreciate your time and your insights. It's always fun to talk to you. I look forward to when we can see each other again, um, either here in Washington or up in Toronto. I know um, we're both big hockey fans and our teams are gone now, but we'll, we'll continue to watch and um, just root for some good games. But at this point, I, I don't have anybody left in, in, uh, in the running anymore, but uh, we can, we can always talk about hockey. Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I started out life as a Maple Leafs fan, uh, but moved on about 15 years ago, just sheer disappointment. Some people in Washington uh, on the football side will, uh, you know, have a sense of that. Um, but, um, you know, we still have Montreal. Uh, I, I can't say I'm a Montreal fan. The truth is I've been, a have been a Blackhawks fan for a number of years. So, 
uh, and I'm old enough to go back to the original six and knew most of the players. So, um, uh, and those games are uh, an opportunity to um, enjoy our products uh, with some family at this point. And uh, I look forward to coming down to Washington and seeing everybody. And uh, as we get through this, yeah, thank you. And this is this has been uh, this has been fun. I've enjoyed this, and uh, you know, uh, I think it's a great initiative. Discus is to be congratulated. You guys have a, a number of uh, new things that you're doing that are pretty exciting. And so I hope you don't mind. We may copy some of them and steal them because they look like great ideas. Not at all, Jan. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great day and look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks, Christine. You too. Good to talk to you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. The Spirited Advocate podcast was brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. If you'd like to be a guest speaker on the show, or send us topic suggestions to cover, please contact us at podcast at distilledspirits.org. And please like and share these episodes. Your support is very appreciated.